Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, the latest from the Ukraine Airlines bombing, which saw 63 Canadians lose their lives. What exactly does First Ontario Centre smell like? And with LRT gone, what does that mean for the development of the city? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, Talking about uh, what has happened with uh, the downing of the Ukrainian airliner, which killed 176 people, 138 of them coming to Toronto, uh, a connecting flight into Toronto, 82 Iranians on board as well. Many are asking, um, many are asking, uh, you know, Iran, Iran shooting down this plane uh, and and their position on shooting down this plane. And what you have to remember is there's 82 Iranians on board this plane. So uh, once Iranian people understand what has fully happened, once again, they could be very upset with their government. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, good afternoon, Scott. Elliot, I can't wait to talk to you on this and get your take. Um, the, the Prime Minister came out yesterday, was certainly the first leader to come out and, uh, and say what had happened, although U.S. news outlets had been reporting it a couple of hours earlier. Uh, interesting uh, column by John Iveson in the National Post. We just had him on. Canadians looking for Trudeau to express fury with Iran were sorely, sorely disappointed. He said he got this idea while sitting in the press conference, and when the Prime Minister eventually announced that this had, in fact, looked like it had been taken down by missiles, there was an audible gasp. Like, he, he said you could see the fury in, in, in even the press corps' Uh, eyes. And I remember thinking the same thing when I heard this uh, after coming into work. Did the Prime Minister convey that? What are your thoughts on his presentation in the press conference? Well, I I think I'd rather comment on the Prime Minister than on the journalist in the room. And um, um, I think the Prime Minister did a very appropriate presentation considering the parameters within which he was working and the goal he wished to achieve. Many said it was about keeping calm. It was, but at the same time firm, and he had a central message, a central message. So there were three things that I picked up from that, and I want to start with where he started uh, in our conversation, Scott. This is a tragedy. Innocent people have been killed. They were blown out of the sky. And whatever the implications, which we must discuss, we have to keep that fundamentally in front of us. This was a, a great tragedy, and, and there's pain. Uh, this, and he, he did express that. The second thing is, yes, he was the one who announced for the first time, I think, that there's a missile attack here. Mm-hmm. Till then, we'd all been speculating. Was it mechanical, uh, perhaps a cyber attack, maybe a drone? Uh, but no, it was a missile, and clearly fired by the Iranians in, a rare, in, in Iranian airspace, uh, a plane taking off, a civilian plane taking off from a, uh, an airport, a civilian airport in Iran, and he did say that. And then he went to the point: we insist upon a full, complete, transparent investigation. And he repeated that line more or less uh, verbatim throughout several times, numerous times. And I think that was the point he wanted to make. 
when there's been an attack, we've got to get to the facts, and, and we're determined to get to the facts. And to say, as he put it, uh, cautiously, uh, initially, we can't get to the facts if we can't get into Iran. Yeah. So to uh, I'll let the press do what they do, but in this case, I think the the point was made and the goal was to get something, and he took the tack he did in order to get it done. And we indeed are still trying to find out if we, we do have access. Initially, when this started, uh, the black boxes were covered. Iran right. said Boeing's not getting them, the U.S. isn't getting them. Obviously, pressure, the Prime Minister, everyone putting on them to, to, to get these to at least a neutral source where they can be read. I've had experts on that said once that happens, it does not take long, less than a week to decode these things. They're now saying it could take months. Uh, and then I guess that position has changed to where we will let people into the uh, crash site and such. And I, and I guess Canadian investigators are on their way over. Right. But will anything be left of this site once they get there? Right. There's reports that it's been bulldozed. Well, let's, uh, indeed. Uh, let's carry on from where we left off. Canada wants access. And the, re- the regime is shifting its position basically they're trying to come up with how do we manage this and the management has been evolving slowly but it doesn't take away from the core fact that they shot down a civilian plane and and some accountability based on an investigation has to be made so we should talk about canada's getting access there was a breakthrough in a sense in that our foreign minister and their foreign minister actually spoke to each other that's a hasn't happened in a long time and it did look as if that led to the possibility that Canada would have access. And we have a plane full of people on the way now to Ankara, Turkey. Uh, and it's got uh, transportation board specialists, uh, specialists in crash analysis. And it's got consular officials. Uh, the, well, you will have to see if, in fact, they follow through. The, will visas be permitted? Will visas be given? Will we be permitted access to Iran to do the job? Ukraine has said, and the Ukraine has an absolute right, and they, they've got a large delegation there. You can put one of your people in with us, one of your crash specialists doing it with us. So Canada will have some access, but we don't know at this point how much. Uh, also coming out of Iran uh, recently after, tra- again, as you said, trying to, to figure out what its position is, and now they want proof that it was shot out of the sky. Right. How can, you know, they've got the black boxes. How, how can anybody tell until that's revealed? What, what is the, why would you ask others for proof of this? Well, the, their position is this. Uh, it wasn't us. We didn't shoot a missile. There's been no missile. Uh, and if you are accusing us of doing this, then you have to prove it because we don't think there was. And, and their top people involved with aviation have said this. Well, their black box will prove that, so let's yeah. open it up at a neutral table. Well, what's interesting on the black box uh, um, issue is that they first said, as you know, Boeing can't have it. Now they're saying, oh, yes, we are such an agreeable people that uh, Boeing can, can have this. Mm-hmm. and. We and not only that, but uh, I think France wants in on this. They have expertise. The black box issue is still in front of us. Um, there's so many different dimensions to this. Uh, the this follows on the assassination of their top general, which led us to all start to say, "Hey, what kind of regime is this anyway?" 
mm-hmm. and it has come into to, we all knew this, but suddenly it came into sharper focus. You can agree or disagree with the American position to make you know to go ahead and and shoot him you right. know, assassinate him, but I guess it was a drone, wasn't it? Yeah. A drone attack, a predator drone. So you can, but that brought into relief the fact that indeed uh, Iran has been, since this regime took power, uh, a force which, uh, a government which held, holds its own position by force and which does indeed, with the architect, Suleiman, operating under the Quds Force, under the IRG, they have created a terrorist network abroad. And it's still in place. And one of the things I'd like to emphasize, since we get caught up with the news in the moment, is that we got through the crisis period, that is, the Iranian attack on the base where we had troops. We have our people there in Iraq. Fortunately, and by plan, uh, apparently, uh, everybody got lucky. Nobody was actually killed there. Mm -hmm. The immediate crisis then passed, followed now by... Iran having to explain why they're shooting down uh, a plane full of Iranians in their own space. Bingo. But after that, we have to remember this crisis just continues. Yeah. The the capacity to create um, terrorist activity at will remains. The apparatus is still in place, and if the goal is to use it, and apparently it is, we are uh, back to where we were before the assassination, before this plane went down. Before the big news that we're talking about, uh, the Middle East is a very unstable place, and it's going to be kept unstable uh, because the nature of this regime is that they want that strategic depth and to be as generous as you can to them. They suffered in the Iran-Iraq war. They never want to do that again, and this is their way of protecting themselves. But it's a way that comes at great cost. Uh, to innocent people, including now apparently the taking down of this plane. So how is this playing with the Iranian people in Iran? Uh, I'm sure the government can keep a lid on this, but only for a limited amount of time. And sooner or later, they have to find out the same information that we're all slowly finding out. We saw the support uh, at the funeral after the killing of the top military general, uh, hundreds of thousands in the streets. What happens when they find out their own government shot down a plane with their own citizens on board? We, uh, I think it's an excellent uh, point, and social media is active inside Iran. It just, it's obviously circumscribed, but they yeah. do their best, and uh, there's things coming out. For example, uh, we just discovered, staying with the plane story for the moment, that the Iranian government not only says they, um, they didn't have it, they didn't shoot, there was no missile, it didn't happen, uh, it's not their fault, but they... Uh, through social media, we're discovering they are using a bulldozer to clean the site. Yeah. And uh, the forensic evidence, therefore, is going to be very difficult. But what this does suggest, going back to your, this point that you, you brought forward, which is a very good one, we have to keep in mind that throughout the region, there has been a popular pushback against the leadership of the day, including inside Iran, again, with popular support across the country in a number of different cities, uh, there were people in the streets before all this happened saying, why are you spending all this money overseas, uh, outside our borders? Why are you fomenting problems in Syria? Why not cure our problems at home? The leadership reacted violently. Well over a thousand people killed. We're looming yeah. through that, that social media again. Then came the funeral. And suddenly that 
was all subsumed. National unity, mm. rally around the flag. The leadership looked like it was further reaffirmed, further entrenched. Now we have this. And the point that you raised is, will this, in a, it, it, I've been curious about it, will this now kind of reinvigorate the opposition to the regime that they had squashed violently and then by uh, staging this massive uh, ceremony to, to venerate the fallen martyr? Will the world ever have definite proof of how this plane came down? Oh, I think so. I think that's there now. My, my, my guess is it's there now for two reasons. But One, without the black box. Exactly. The, the black box may tell us. But the quality, I was just talking to an expert on this, the, the quality of satellite surveillance uh, has increased so significantly and Iran has covered so thoroughly by surveillance uh, from satellites and other sources that I believe this is uh, going to be definitively known. The question now that is being raised, well, Iran is saying, show me, show me, show me. Well, you got the boxes. You. <laughs> <laughs> you want us to tell you how we're spying on you. Uh, just yeah. believe it. We've got the goods on you. So, so is I that the idea here? Is that the idea here that they are looking, uh, Iran's just looking for sources to see how exactly they're being spied on. They're looking to see what the technology is well, involved. I think they're trying to continue denial. Yeah. Remember what much of the game has been when Soleimani was in charge, and it'll continue, is plausible deniability. So that all these proxies or allied partners that they have brought into existence and were managing and paying for uh, throughout the region, a lot of that was so that things could be done and Iran wouldn't get the blame for it. Hmm. So the proxies could act and uh, Hezbollah could do things and the Houthis in Yemen. So uh, a lot of that was plausible deniability, and they're still trying for plausible deniability over the missile question. Uh, but I suspect they can't get away with it in terms of the outside world. How long, as you put it, can they keep their own population from coming to the same? A U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, just no. recently said, uh, Pompeo just recently yep. said and echoed basically what the Prime Minister said, that right. they feel they have the intelligence that this, in fact, was brought down uh, by missiles. What about the U.S. response here? What would the response have been if there were Americans on that plane? Well, um, if Americans had been killed in the missile attack on the air base, we would be having a totally different conversation. Yeah. Uh, from things I've heard, the Americans genuinely were ready to attack Iran. If, uh, if the Iranian reaction to the assassination had risen to the level of attacking more Americans, the Americans might have acted. And that's almost certainly why the plane was taken down, because their country was on high alert and they rather incompetently managed their own uh, defense system. And that's what led to the taking down the plane. In terms of um, what would happen if Americans had been on that plane, we would again be in a much uh, um, a different position than we are now. I think America would be playing a more active role. But he did say ominously in that press conference, and nobody followed him up that I could hear, he said, if it is determined that this plane was brought down by an Iranian missile, then there will be consequences. But since no Americans were involved, and if it's proven to be, in a sense, a fog of war accident, mm -hmm. and remember, Donald Trump himself gave the Iranians that option. We'll, we'll, let, you, we'll let you claim fog of war here. It was probably a mistake. Our prime minister said this. By the way, the U.K. has also confirmed uh, their intelligence that the, the missile took down that plane. So uh, the, 
but the Iranians have not chosen to go that route, saying it's a terrible, tragic accident. We were, we were being attacked, and we, we, this was something went awry, and that's the fog of war. But they're not even uh, reaching for the fog of war uh, excuse at the moment. Many are saying this uh, all started with the tit for tat, obviously, with yes. Iran, in, in the sense that you know yes. everything that built up with the embassy attack, and then the yes. retaliation with taking out the general, and then the retaliation to that attack with hitting the air bases in Iraq. That's what ended. Up, that's why the defense systems were turned on. It obviously were still running when they were sending commercial aircraft. Uh, into the sky, and we have what we have, as you mentioned, in the War of Fog. Uh, does this temper Donald Trump's response about this whole issue? Nothing will temper Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm response, guessing, in, in the except, sense, except his own reelection, and uh, how this factors into domestic politics. My my view of this. But I guess he can't he can't say too much because, in the end, people will blame him for starting the whole thing. Well. Uh, which people? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, the people he cares about are his his voting base. No, there's so many dimensions to this. As for the tit for the where do you want to enter the cycle? Uh, yeah. This particular cycle started, as you said, uh, with the assassination, but that actually came after the attack on on the American embassy in Baghdad. Which there's a long, personally, I think this cycle began when oil was discovered in the Middle East. Yeah, and developed. Yeah, yeah. And since then, the politics of the region, underneath all of those things we see at the surface, have been disfigured by the fact that uh, it suited outside powers and then local powers to create autocratic governments that hold power only by force and subterfuge and, uh, and by diversion. You know, look over there, don't look at what we're doing. Now that the U.S. is self-sufficient with its energy, does that change that discussion? That's what the President of the United States said. Yeah. It opens up options we didn't have, basically saying, we don't need you anymore. But the rest of the, first of all, that's not necessarily true. The U.S. still imports oil. And, uh, but, and once fracking is, which is the basis of that self-sufficiency, yeah. is proven to be an environmental hazard. Uh, and there may be peak oil. There's a lot of issues there. But the rest of the world still, much of it still rests on that. As long as we rely on oil, we're going to rely on the Middle East someplace. Yep. And Where do you see this going short term, Elliot? Short term, um, I think there's probably going to be an attempt by the Iranian government to tamp things down because they have a crisis on their hands that they didn't expect. America wants to, I, I believe, uh, to to just rid itself of this issue and turn its back on the Middle East and move on to other issues. Uh, this was one and done, I suspect, for Donald Trump. He, he didn't plan to follow through with them. This is a, a, a state, standing, using my, my polit- geopolitics hat, this was not an effort to change the equation of the, uh, of the direction of Middle East politics. Uh, it was, I, I'm entering, I'm doing something, and, and, and then we're going back to the way it was before. I think his attention will go elsewhere if, if he's uh, unless something happens that keeps him there. So, I, th- I, I think it's going to go back to a very dangerous Middle East with Iran seeking revenge through all these proxies. Uh, remember, there was a one of, one of their proxy leaders was killed along with Soleimani, and they yeah. got they will want to do things. So, I'm afraid we're going back to status quo ante the way it was before. Uh, but meanwhile, a number of innocents have been killed in that airplane. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. As always, Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. And to you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, it's been a while since I've been uh, into the bowels of First Ontario Centre. You know, been up top, Bulldogs game, what have you. But, you know, it's, it's, it's back to my uh, rock radio days and bringing on bands and stuff. That's pretty much the last time uh, I was in the bowels of... First Ontario Centre, a.k.a. Cops Coliseum. And back then, I don't remember anything smelling any different than any other facility. Um, and, and, you know, up top, when you're at a Bulldogs game, you know, you can't, other than the, the people around you, you really can't smell much. <laughs> like, I haven't noticed that. Uh, but how, uh, but as it turns out, a, in all of this discussion about a uh, arena for the Bulldogs and Lime Ridge and, and other locations, it looks like the city's uh, kiboshed that idea. All of a sudden, this video has surfaced uh, with uh, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard talking about the arena from a past concert. So this is Joe Elliott from Def Leppard at a recent show. How recent is this? Um, talking about First Ontario Centre. Captain's Log, Stardate, July 20th, 2019, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. This building is old. The underneath of this building stinks like a 10,000 asses stink. It's awful. However, it's going to be a sold-out gig, so who cares? Even if it smells like 10,000 asses, if you got a sold-out gig, that's all that really matters. In the uh, rock and roll game, that and a solid food table. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Scott Radley is with us. Uh, man, this man, no matter what we're doing, he always manages to uh, get on air with us, and we love him for that. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Uh, and, of course, the Scott Radley Show, heard weeknights. I owe you big time, you know. Are you there? Or I haven't got yet. Producing bands at concerts and then this situation... And uh, all I can think of is that episode of WKRP with Scum of the Earth <laughs> that decide they're not going to go on and end up fighting with Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap. And, uh, and, and they're, they're the purveyors of hoodlum rock is what they call it. This, this whole thing seems so perfectly rock and roll. It's great. Scum, of, scum of the Earth. I had completely forgotten about that episode, Scott. Thank you for bringing back that back. Go back and watch. It's worth a relook. Uh, anyway, um, you know, again, it's been a while since I've been in the bowels, uh, you know, in the rock and roll days and bringing bands in on. In a manner of speaking. Which was, you know, I, I just thought the phrase fit, you know. Um, and and, for sure. <laughs> and it, there's lots of, lots of tales, lots of stories. Remember the guy that used to work? I can't think of his name now. I think you guys did a, a piece Dave on Kelly. him. Yes, who Dave worked, Kelly. Yes, who worked backstage and saw all Big of these. Dave. Yeah, saw all of these people come and go over the years and had a wall full of autographs and such. Uh, again, I don't now it's been some years since I've been underneath it. I've, you know, been inside. It was inside it last year. I don't remember it smelling uh, any way different in any way. Is this an accurate description of our beloved First Ontario Centre? Well, maybe I, I don't remember when they were there, and maybe they were in the July of 2019, yeah. apparently. Okay, so maybe July, the day before that, was, I don't know, a burrito tasting or something event at the stadium. I'm not really sure. Um, my experience has, no, my familiarity with what 10,000 butt cracks would smell like is admittedly a little not strong, but... Well, uh, obviously, I, he I, has had this problem before, or he wouldn't have that comparison. <laughs> Clearly, we're not the only ones. I, I don't, uh, I've not had an experience of a... Um, 
an overpowering bouquet of butt crack as I wandered the halls of First Ontario Center. Now, maybe I'm just in the wrong part of the building. Yeah. Maybe there's a designated stinky butt crack area that right. I've just not visited yet. How did he but, end um, up in the visitor's dressing room? That's what I want to know. Well, you know, and that, maybe that's the answer there. That the, the if it does stink, it's not coming from people who are regulars in Hamilton. It's from the visitors. Go ahead, tell that story about visitors' dressing rooms and stadiums. Uh, there was a time when there was a player for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who used to write a column for the Winnipeg Free Press, and uh, after a game in Hamilton, he wrote a scathing piece on how basically Hamilton was the. Well, I, I can't remember his words exactly, but basically if you were going to give Canada an enema, you'd put the hose in Hamilton. And um, he talked about how the visitor's dressing room at Ivor Wynn smelled like pee. And I wrote a, uh, a response column to that, and I pointed out that, well, if the visitor's dressing room smells like pee, why are you blaming us? That's where you guys yeah, hang out. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, isn't there a tradition that it's the home team that gets a nicer room anyway? Now, I don't know if cleanliness becomes an issue, but perhaps I could see that. You know, look, any guys listening, they understand it's not that hard to aim. You know, the smells generally tend to go down when you just aim in a straight line and don't hit the floor. So, you know, that's <laughs> anyway, back to this story. Clearly, uh, this has I, turned into a lesson, which I wasn't, I wasn't sure we were going to go in that direction, but go ahead. I don't, uh, I, I think Mr. Leopard is um, slightly... No, it's Joe Elliott. There is no Def Leopard. Well, I like to call them Mr. Leopard. Each one of them is Mr. Leopard, because then you can remember their names. All right. Um, but, uh, no, I, I look, the, the arena is old. There are definitely parts of it. Uh, I know that um, during the toy toss game, for example, oh, no. a couple of weeks ago, there terrible. were folks complaining that it was raining outside and it was also raining inside. Um, you know, there are glitches, there are hiccups, there are problems that need to be resolved. Uh, I'm not sure that... Um, lining the halls with air fresheners is one of them. Well, you know, obviously, as we've had many discussions about what to do with the old cops coliseum, and, and we know the situation, we just had you on talking about the whole bulldog thing and such. I understand it's old. I understand it's it's sort of on pause. But does that mean it doesn't have to be cleaned? I mean, this sounds like a cleanliness issue. I don't issue. think it's unclean. I, I, don't, I, real, I don't believe it's unclean. I wouldn't I, say that, look, but... You know, if if, I, if clearly there's the aroma of ten thousand arses in the room. Uh, I don't know. Okay, so Fabri- maybe some, some maybe some Febreze. I don't know what the answer is here. I've been in both dressing rooms, a home and away, after games. And you know, if you if you come into a dressing room after a hockey game, no, oh, it's right. The equipment the equipment is wet. It, the the uh, there's moisture there. But they what they do is after the game when they hang the equipment up they bring in these big fans you know the kind if you have a flood and it blows the air right along the ground <laughs> the kind the firefighters and, have on the truck to get the smoke out well that's right but it dries the car so the room may may not smell exactly like yeah. you know a perfume factory for uh, the first hour or two but after a couple hours the team leaves the room the place dries out the stuff gets sure. laundered I've. I, other than the usual faint odor of hockey that just lingers forever, but that's not... Sure, it's like the bar smell in a pub. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, go, go into a bar one morning after yeah. the night before. Remember when they used to smoke in pubs? That was brutal. Exactly. And you would catch the whiff of that, but yeah. it was it's just part of the... Look, if, if this is unique to his stadium or arena experience, 
then I would suggest that he's never actually played a concert in a hockey arena before where a hockey team plays. I don't believe that. Well, I'm sure he's played in many sport arenas of some sort. Now, let me ask you this. So this tweet had been around for a while, uh, from July of last year. Uh, the Bulldogs responsible for, for promoting this now? I've got yeah, my I tongue in my I cheek think, here. I think that the, the Hamilton Bulldogs, as part of their daily operations, should make sure that there is a good supply of Febreze and air freshness. No, did they promote, are they out there promoting this video? Do you think this is why this is all coming? How does this change oh, oh, the discussion? Oh. Come on, work with me, Scott. How does this change the discussion on the whole arena? Are they responsible for now being the cleaner? No, they're not responsible for cleaning up the dressing room. I'm not blaying the smelly arses on the Bulldogs <laughs> in any way. Let me retract that if that's what I was conveying. No. What I'm saying is, obviously, Bulldogs are looking for a new barn. Uh, it doesn't hurt to help promote. Look, we're not the only ones that says it stinks in here. I don't know. Does this move the conversation? No, I don't think that when it comes down to spending millions of dollars, either privately or publicly, uh, that a malodorous air is going to be the driver behind the decision the city council eventually makes. So uh, does this move the conversation that perhaps this this facility has become more of a liability than it ha- than it is an asset. At what point, if there's so much publicity around, bad publicity uh, around this building, you're talking about leaky roofs. You saw, uh, heard of it, the bull- uh, Bulldogs game during the toy toss. Uh, we're talking about acts that don't think it's the greatest place to play. Uh, at what point does the sponsorship say, and I'm not suggesting in any way this is what they're thinking, this is my opinion, hey, you know what, there's so much bad publicity around this barn we're going to take our sponsorship somewhere else or clean it up a bit i mean at what point does stuff like this i mean you know the counselors are all blowing it up well you know they're old and stinky and all that other stuff but at the end of the day guests came to town and they didn't like the facilities sooner or later that's going to be a hindrance so okay t- there's two different things that you've said there one of them silly one of them serious and i and we'll go there the first one is is the fact that a band said that the arena smells going to move the needle at all as far as the discussion of a new arena goes, and I would say not one one-hundredth of one percent. It, it, that is entirely irrelevant. Now, the second part, though, which is a, perhaps a little more relevant, is if we are starting to hear, and this is the only one that I know of, so uh, it, it, it's a lone act right now, but if we were to start... Yeah, but wait a sec. We're talking about elevator, uh, sorry, escalators. Oh, no, we're no, talking no, about no, you no. talking about the thing coming in, and then now no, guests. I mean, how many guests do we have to say, how many guests do we have to have line up and say it smells? Again, you no. know, you, we didn't need Def Leppard or Mr. Leopard, as you put it, to tell us that the facility is waning. The escalators being broken, although they are trying to fix them, uh, the they're putting new ones. In. Have they been waiting for parts? Uh, I mean, uh, I think they were running. The last time they were running was when I was in the bowels, bringing on the tragically yeah. hip. But if it's so, so you've got fans or, or guests, clients, if you want, who are having their own experience, whether good or bad. My issue was if you were to start to get a number of the performers to make comments that we don't like coming here because the place isn't up to date or whatever, that then starts to maybe create a different story. Now, I've not heard that before. I've not heard acts who come in and perform take shots at the arena before. Maybe they're too polite. Uh, By the time the check clears, they're out of town. That's generally the number one consideration, isn't it? Uh, Just make sure that I get paid and I can suffer through it for a night if it's a bad thing. And, I, again, I don't know 
because this is the first act that I can, well, the only other one that I can ever remember that there was some question about whether or not it was a problem. Remember a number of years ago when they brought Luciano Pavarotti? Oh, here we go. Bail? Yeah. yeah. And, and there was suggestions of, well, was it that he really was sick or was he dissatisfied with the whole ambiance around the great man? Who knows? I had but a friend of mine. Who, other I, case I, I got I a friend remember. of mine. I got a friend of mine who's in the staging business who, and he, he may be listening now, and who now lives in Hamilton, but I'll re- remain nameless. And uh, he was involved with the instrumentation with that concert, and he said they were called in to move it out long before Luciani, ba- uh, Luciani Pavarotti bailed on this. They knew they weren't. He wasn't going to sing that afternoon. Anyway, but I digress. Just another old, uh, you know, concert tale. That's right. But at the end oh, of the yeah. day, at the end of the day, whether it's the elevators, whether it's a leaky roof, this, that, the other, um, and now the performers, I don't know how many. You know, there's enough other inside information and stuff going on with the infrastructure itself uh you know now that an a- how many more acts do you need lining up to say the dressing room stinks all they'll do is paint the dressing room which is probably a good idea or or clean it in some way um but but you know more acts lining up saying well it's kind of stinky in there um and i'm sure it was an exaggeration well i guess i don't know he made the video um uh, you know, I'm not sure if you get a lineup of a performer saying that. I, I don't know how that's going to change the tune over and above everything else. I think it fits in, you know, it's another spoke in the wheel, which is my point to you. Uh, here we go again. I, I, at what point does this become a detriment and not an asset? The flip side, though, uh, to, you know, to talk about cops and First Ontario Centre is a couple of years ago, Paul McCartney came and he was very complimentary. So, um, Springsteen you know, didn't say anything bad, so yeah, same thing. Oh, no, Billy Joel didn't. Let me go down. Garth Brooks didn't. Uh, yeah, but you know what? They also Joel got gigantic. They also get gigantic tour buses, in, and as I'm sure Def Leppard has. But you know, if you don't want to spend any time in the Coliseum at all, you don't have to as an act. You can. They have their own little hotel stuff, and they're all parked underneath the cops in that uh, in that underground parking lot uh, that you see off uh, Bay. And they've got a village down there. It's a village of buses. They literally walk out of the bus and onto the stage. They don't spend a lot of time there. Hello? Still there? Yeah, I am still yeah, there. There we are. Yeah, something happened. So, no, I, look, you're, you're 100% right. They don't have to be. I, I, look, I, I think that more than anything, uh, what you have here is a, is a performer who um, has a blog, it would appear. I don't follow him regularly. And, uh, you know, sometimes you go on and you try to do things that will get attention and get views and get clicks. And, um, you know, that phrase that he used is, uh, is pretty catchy. Oh, it's going to get people to pay attention. It's clickbait for a, for a video. There's no choice about that. You want to take a call? Sure. Come on. Tommy's on the line. Uh, go ahead, Will. Tommy's on the line. Tommy, what are your thoughts on all of this? What do you think of cops? Uh, honestly, I, I think it's getting out of proportion. Blowing out of proportion. I really don't care what the singer of uh, Def Leppard has to say. Um, I was there, I think it was in September, when Sebastian Maniscalco came. The stadium's old, but the arena's old, but it doesn't stink. I think people are blowing it out of proportion. Well, again, he's, you got to remember, he's not sitting where you are. He's down underneath in the dressing rooms yeah. and the bowels of the stadium. Well I, did, well, I have some friends who know him quite well, and he said he loved it here. So I, that's just my take on it. Um, yes, it, it is an old arena, and um, the, the second part to it is now they're saying no to an arena on the mountain. Well, we can say goodbye to the uh, 
the Hamilton Bulldogs, that's for sure. It's a shame. All right, Tommy, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. So is this I'm with much... Tommy, by the way, Scott. Is... I'm with Tommy because, again, I've, I've been down there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah. And I have yet to uh, smell the no. army of butts that no. <laughs> that was described. I've never, I've never experienced that myself either no. at this stadium. Uh, that being said, it'll be interesting to see how this conversation moves forward, and especially in regard to the Bulldogs. You want to? Where are we in a year with that? Where does that go? Is is the, are the Bulldogs gone? If if it looks like Council's turning all this down on uh, meaning their Lime Ridge Arena. Yeah, so on Wednesday, when this story broke, and I talked to Michael Landlauer, the very last line of my column, I said, uh, so three years from now, I said three years, not one, but I said, I asked him three years from now, where are the Bulldogs? And he says, ask me again in a couple months. There you go. That's, uh, I, I, he didn't give a direct answer, but I think that's a pretty direct answer. Scott Radley's been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. More on this tonight, every weeknight as well, and sport columnist in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We certainly know what it was like and the development that uh, moved forward in regard to uh, the the Hamilton LRT, and although it was certainly a long road to hoe and eventually got us nowhere, um, it certainly looked for a period of time like Hamilton was going to get its LRT. That certainly did spawn a lot of uh, development in and around the city, and uh, especially along the actual route of the line. Many are questioning whether, and again, let's be honest, the city was turning a corner uh, long before LRT. Uh, certainly, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it would be naive to say that the, the LRT was not helping to generate revenue and, and development in the city. That's certainly the direction it was going in. But if we remove LRT from the equation, how much does that damage the economy of the city? How much does that slow the city down, whether it's real estate, whether it's uh, commercial development, what have you? To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here, Scott. Marvin, before we get on uh, with what we're going to talk about, just want to express my condolences to everybody within the uh, McMaster community. I understand uh, a couple of the students that were on the Ukrainian airline jet were uh, students of McMaster University, and uh, it, it it must be a, a terrible feeling that's gripped the university uh, this week. Well, well, it has indeed. I, I'm not sure if you, all of your listeners understand that uh, a number of our graduate students come to us from other parts of the world, and we have a number of Iranian students, not just in engineering, which is where these two were, but uh, in my, my area, the School of Business and other areas, we are quite open to uh, helping to educate the world. And then when they come to a place like Hamilton, of course, they are not in their home country, so they bond very tightly, and they share meals together, and they share social occasions together, uh, support each other in many, many ways. And so I'm sure there are probably some people saying, well, look, it was just two people. But boy, you know, in that kind of a community, two people is huge. And, and we're still trying to figure out all of the repercussions from all of this. They were expected back. This was actually a flight that was starting in Tehran, going to Kiev, but ultimately making their way back to Canada. And suddenly that person who sat at that desk isn't there anymore. And it makes it all very, very real. What is the mood of the campus this week? 
Well, uh, you know, <laughs> you swing. Um, Monday, of course, was the first day of classes, so you've got a day which is all buoyant and full of optimism, a new term, new beginnings, new starts, and, and lots of wonderful energy on campus. It was Tuesday night, of course, when the rockets got fired in retaliation for the killing of the Iranian general, and um, initially thought, well, good news, no Americans were injured or hurt, so we dodged a bullet there, and then it was just an hour or so later that we learned that this plane had come down. Initially, anyway, the reports were mechanical failures, so you say, well, my gosh, what the hell happened there? Uh, for Boeing, anyway, there was it something they did. They've, they've had so many problems in the last couple of years, and now it seems to be emerging that it was a misfired rocket or a rocket that target, targeted the wrong kind of a thing. And we're still waiting. I think, honestly, it's, it's a situation where we're all kind of in pause mode, waiting for some final determination. There's as many rumors as there seem to be facts these days. So, you know, uh, the grieving process gets held up because you're not exactly sure what happened and who to hold responsible, etc. Want to weigh in on the political aspect of this and, and how this has all unfolded? Right now we're waiting to, as you said, eagerly to find out more information while Iran is possessing the black boxes. Initially said that they did not want to release these. Now are inviting people in and actually asking others for proof uh, why they feel these thing, the, this plane was shot down, yet they're holding the proof with the black box itself. How, how, does this, how is this going to move forward? Well, it, it, of course, it, it's tricky. Let's just start first with normally when a plane goes down, here's what happens. The the country of origin for the plane, so in this case, since it was a Boeing plane, the United States would have a seat at the table. The country of origin of the airline would have a seat at the table. So this was a Ukrainian jet. You'd have somebody uh, from there. And then you would have an authority, a transportation authority that recognized on the world stage that doesn't have to be an American authority. It could be a British authority or a German authority. They would also sit at the table along with the country in which the accident happened, in this case, Iran. And experts from all four countries would take a look at the information in, in as transparent a process as they can, and ultimately a finding would be released. Usually there'd be preliminary data within a week or two, and then a final finding with all the details in it two or three months after the case. Uh, the problem, of course, is that the United States and Iran have had a very testy relationship, and that's not new. It goes back at least 50, 60 years back even to the Shah of Iran, who was a favorite of um, American uh, presidents for a long time. So um, uh, initially, Iran said, we're not letting America into the table. Canada severed their international relations with Iran back in 2012. So in theory, we don't have anything to do with them. But there was a phone call this week between the leadership of Iran and Prime Minister Trudeau because 62, the second largest group of people on the plane after Iranians themselves, uh, were killed, um, Canada said, well, we really think we should be involved, too. And, and I think Iran is beginning to realize that even if they want to keep America out of it, bringing in somebody like Canada or even bringing in people like Britain or France, that's probably a good thing. But as you pointed out, this is still early days. We're really just 72 hours or so and 90 hours since the, the plane came down, and it's still getting sorted out. Uh, there's rumors floating around that they, they could have been picked. They, they could have picked this site over. There's shots of bulldozers, whether they're accurate or not. We're not sure. Do you think there'll be anything left of this site by the time Canadian investigators get there? Yes. Well, so the bulldozers and other things, we have to remember this plane went down roughly two and a half minutes after takeoff. This was a plane that was loaded for a four and a half hour flight. It had an awful lot of fuel. And when it goes down, that fuel explodes, but it burns and it continues to burn and continues to burn. And, and given the way a plane crashes, you've got to move the debris around a little bit to help get the fire out. 
Uh, it also crashed not in the middle of the desert, but in a suburban area or a community outside of Tehran. So you, you also want to keep those people safe. So, yes, there, were, there was disturbance to the site. Uh, would it have been done as surgically as we might have done it in a more developed world? Probably not. But I think there will be still plenty there. And the most important things aren't really the debris on the ground, but these boxes. There, there's something called a black box. Yeah. Um, uh, oddly enough, they're orange-colored. They're not black-colored. They're orange-colored, so they can easily be found. There are about three of these boxes. There's one in the tail. There's a, one over the wing, and there's one in the, in the head of the plane. Uh, they track all kinds of things, voice communications, altimeter readings, instrument readings, what have you. And, and because, again, they got the fire out relatively quickly, there is data there. Now, will we get it all? I, I actually think we probably will. Uh, what we're probably not going to get is the same kind of compensation if this flight had gone down in a developed world. In other words, if I'm a Canadian family and I say, look, you, you killed my spouse, I deserve some compensation here. A court in Canada might even award you, let's say, make up a number here and say $2 million, but good luck in trying to collect that. I, given that we don't have relations with Iran, I doubt that we'll ever see compensation. Uh, last question on this, then we'll move on. How do you think this is going to play in Iran at the end of the day? Uh, no Americans on board, but certainly 63 Canadians and uh, I believe at least 82 Iranians. How is this going to play when people in that country realized it was their own military that shot down their own uh, citizens in a plane? Yeah, again, it's a little hard to know because this this whole I don't like to call it a war, but this whole set of skirmishes between Iran and the United States have been going on for a long, long time, and there is very little love lost for America. They often view America as the aggressor. Uh, these additional sanctions Mr. Trump put on, you don't understand the impact on our country, what have you. Having said that, though, I think many people will be a little chastened by this and say it's one thing to go after military people in Iraq, uh, soldiers, uh, generals, colonels, whatever else you have in the military. Uh, who that, That's sort of one of the quid pro quos when you join the military. You are putting your life on the line. But these were people who were not putting their lives on the line. These were ordinary civilians trying to live their life a normal way. And we screwed up. Um, uh, oddly enough, of course, the weaponry that was used to bring the plane down would probably have been Russian, it was a Russian missile fired by uh, a militant force in the Ukraine that brought down a jetliner a couple of years ago. I almost think we need to get a message back to Vladimir Putin. You'd better get a better targeting system on these missiles so they know when to go after a military target and not a civilian target. So I think there'll be some chastening through all of this and uh, you know, sober second thoughts. But uh, substantially, the problems they have with the United States will continue on and they'll continue to be sniping on both sides. All right, let's uh, move on to a local issue. Uh, We're now living in the time of post-LRT. Many will debate whether it's dead or a delay or what have you, but certainly stalled at this point. Uh, We we, we certainly know uh, prior to this cancellation how development came in and, and was certainly moving along where the line was. Now that this has been pulled or delayed or whatever you want to call it. Um, How does that affect Hamilton? Hamilton had a good head start prior to this. Was it because of that? Will we see a blip with the the removal of LRT? Mm -hmm. So I have to come at this in two different ways. I hope you don't mind, Scott. The the first is that the route that was chosen, what we now often call the B-line, which is the route from Eastgate to McMaster University, has always been and will continue to be the prime development corridor, especially for intensification in Hamilton. In other words, if you're going to build a 10-story or 20-story condo building, you're not likely building it in Freelton. You're not likely building it out in in, uh, Alfreda. This is the area where 
you have the density of population to make it happen. So we always felt the LRT, it wasn't going to cause development, but it was going to speed development, meaning it is going to happen regardless, but rather than taking 10 years or 15 years, maybe we'd see that development in five years. Uh, so I, I don't think it's the end of the world. I think Hamilton will continue to uh, turn the corner. Th- good things will continue to happen. They just would have happened faster with LRT. But here's the other problem I've got. This is the second way I want to come at this. We know there's likely no LRT, but in theory there's still a billion dollars on the table for something. And what will that something be? So let me give you an example. Suppose it's bus rapid transit in the same corridor. Um, just so your average listener understands, bus rapid transit just doesn't mean you're putting more buses on the corridor. You actually dedicate a travel lane to the buses. You still build some terminals off and on along the route, but, you know, this bus has the right-of-way, and it really speeds people. Now, the LRT would do it on rails. The bus does it, you know, uh, on a road with regular mobility. But if we got bus rapid transit along that same corridor, I would be hard-pressed to tell you there would be any significant difference to the kind of development we'd see uh, without an LRT. In other words, BRT is a pretty good substitute for LRT. Now, if this panel, remember we're waiting uh, uh, very hesitantly for who this uh, supreme panel of four experts, community experts, are going to be, let's suppose they come out and say, no, no, we don't want to do that at all. What we want to do is have buses that go from the waterfront to the airport, or we want to do something across the mountain. Well, we'd have to see what the alternative is and whether we'd get the same kind of clout. But it's still possible if they go for BRT along the same route, we're going to get the same benefits. What about those that are already vested? What about those that were already in, uh, assuming the LRT would go through? Right. So they they are, uh, in essence, for lack of a better term, holding their breath. Uh, let me give this a couple of ways. You know, Metrolinx bought 61 properties along the area. Those are mm-hmm. bordered up, and neighbors complain bitterly about this. But Metrolinx isn't selling those properties because we don't know what the alternative is. If it's BRT, they may still demolish those properties in favor of terminals and continue doing some of the development work. So you, you, they may still be necessary. Same thing if I'm planning to build a condo. If BRT is coming along the same route, well, okay, we, we just keep going. So most people have gone into what I'd call a freeze mode, and that freeze mode is fine for three months, six months, whether that condo gets developed in 2021 or 2022 really doesn't make any difference. And, and they're all holding their breath for what are we getting in exchange. Now, uh, again, to be candid with you, Scott, if this group does their recommendation and then Mr. Ford comes to town and says, you know what, I'm taking that whole billion away, you're not getting anything out of this, mm. then I think you may see some projects canceled. But uh, if you think of, for instance, the Connolly project, that was uh, the church site on James Street, uh, let me get my directions right here, James Street uh, South, it would be at that point. Uh, if you're looking at the Television City project that Brad Lamb had for the CHCH buildings, those haven't gone away They've just been put on hold until we know what we might be getting instead. That being said, you talked about the $1 billion. Many would rather have that in their hand or their back pocket than an LRT. How do we make sure this goes towards projects that will actually not only work towards solving the problem, but city build as opposed to maintenance operations Mm -hmm. repair that we would have had anyway? Mm -hmm. Well, it starts with this panel of four people. Uh, 
Uh, let's just, for the sake of argument, suppose that I'm one of those four people. I'm not, but let's suppose I'm one of those four people. First thing those four people have to decide is what process are they using? Are they just going to sit in a room and debate among themselves and, and choose options? Or are they going to have some kind of public hearing to hear from some different people? Or will they be bringing in experts to get from different things? So it, to me, it's very much about you know how are they making this decision? What is the process they'll use to make this decision? Is there openness? Are they willing to hear about options? And will people be able to put things on the table? Or, you know, in theory, if it's just four cronies that get together, go into a room somewhere and talk among themselves, they might come out and say, you know, what we need to do is uh, spend the billion dollars on, uh, on uh, I don't know, just maintaining the buses that we have. That would be a real opportunity lost. So I am hoping we'll have a more transparent process and people who are really open to the possibility of city building. Are you worried all this will get lost in the sauce or death by delay? Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to take uh, two or three or four or five years to figure out how to spend all of this money. I mean, you just don't want to walk around willy-nilly. Yeah, so I, I guess, Scott, part of me is still a bit in shock. I didn't quite see this coming uh, uh, when it did happen in December. Uh, we'd had assurances from Mr. Ford himself when he was running for office, the previous transportation minister, a gentleman named Jeff Urich, that all was fine, all was proceeding apace, and although there was a significant chunk of Hamiltonians who were suspicious about it all, it seemed like this was going, and then quite literally just a few days before Christmas, the Grinch shows up, yanks it out, but then waves the promise of something else. So I, much like other people, have kind of go into a freeze mode. I don't know what to hope for here exactly. I know there are people who are hoping this panel of four will come back with another variation of LRT. I have a feeling that that ship has sailed, uh, but the question is what could still be on the table, and I'm still hoping for some positive moves, and it won't take three or four years. I'd like to thank the city council who had who'd backed LRT, if they get a good counterproposal, could quickly get behind that. And again, this might only wind up being a six or eight month delay on the project, hardly noticeable in the scheme of time. If instead we have to debate, as you say, five, six years, boy, we're, we're fiddling while the, while the patient burns here. We really need to get in there and get doing something. Uh, we've certainly heard that uh, this will take time and nobody quite sure where the billion dollars will go. Even thrown on the table, hey, if LRT is the option, we may look at it. We may look at it again, which seems quite odd. Is this a delay? Is this dead? Yeah. So here, here's my question to that person who says LRT, we'd even consider it. Are you going to consider it the way you consider the LRT in Kitchener-Waterloo and Mississauga under construction cost only? When this thing shot up to $5.5 billion, they added in all the operating and maintenance and replacement costs over the next 30 years. So are we getting a billion dollars, but it is to be spent over 30 years? Or are we getting a billion dollars that can be spent on the construction of something? And, and if they're going to cost it, the same way that they've costed the LRT to get to $5.5 billion. There is no LRT you can build that will come in over a 30-year time period with a total cost of a $1 billion. That's why I'm feeling that the government is saying to us, we want you to do buses, some kind of bus system of some sort. But I, I, I don't know why they changed their costing methodology, and I don't know if they're willing to go back to the methodology they used in Ottawa and Mississauga and Kitchener-Waterloo why did they do something different here? I don't know if we'll ever get an answer to that. Can you can you see us getting back into this discussion within a decade? Um, um, I'm going to say that 
both BRT and LRT are infrastructural decisions, and once they are made, you wouldn't jump to another one. In other right. words, if we get a dedicated transit lane from one side of the city to the other with what have you, all those sorts of things, then we won't do LRT. This will be the alternative to LRT, and we won't keep debating as we go. What I'd like to think is, you might know the transit plan in Hamilton has the name BLAST, yep. B-L-A-S-T. Each of those letters represent a different transit corridor. So if this is the answer for the B corridor, let's not keep debating that. Let's get it installed, and then let's talk about the L or the A or the S or the T and keep moving forward on that plan. So I would hope we don't revisit LRT there, but maybe some sort of an LRT from the waterfront to the airport, maybe that would make sense. We'll get to that in fullness of time. I remember reading an old story uh, in in one of the books on Hamilton, the history of Hamilton, how a person, a family, went from the top of the escarpment, uh, taking a coach to the edge, then a rail line down, and then a streetcar to the uh, shoreline, and then a ferry to Toronto. It now takes about as much time to drive as it did do back then. It'd yeah. be funny if we do a full circle. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there are alternative methods. What you're talking about, an incline railway, or in many places in, in Europe, they're called a funicular. There's many people who would like to see us bring that back as a way to get people from the lower city to the mountain. I've actually heard someone want to do a cable car. Here's one that maybe you don't know, uh, Scott. If you take a look at York Street into Hamilton, and it's this lovely uh, driveway that's got this middle area, this grassy area, that was all installed because someone had a vision of a monorail yeah, running into Hamilton from Toronto. So these ideas do come, and infrastructure gets built. It's just hard to get people to commit. But I think once we get shovels in the ground, if it's BRT or LRT, we're stuck. If we're not doing either of those things, if it's just, well, we'll buy some electric buses, put them on the road, and there you go, there's some money for you, then I think we will have this debate again about more infrastructural uh, designing of transit in Hamilton. Marvin Ryder, business professor at De- uh, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. As always, thanks so much, Marvin. Glad to be here. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.